Okay, guys, we got a speaker here. Not these, not these speakers, but we got a speaker in the building. And I, I need some help hyping this guy up. We, some people call him the beard. Just me, I call him the beard. Some people call him, what is it, uh, soft hands? Soft hands. Some people call him soft hands. Some people call him pastor. But lots of you, everyone here would know him by Gavin Briscoe. Guys, come on. Give it up for Gavin. Are we on? Brent, is that working? Yeah? You guys can hear me? Anthony, that's pastor soft hands to you, okay? <laughs> pastor soft hands. Kaylin, where are you? Oh, she's at the shift, at the RA shift in the office. Darn. Darn. Darn, darn. She's going to miss out on that. Okay, so I get made fun of uh, by my soft hands, by my wife, often. Um, too often, where it's like a sore spot. <laughs> a soft spot. Yeah, it's a soft spot. That's right. Uh, and my kids call me Pastor Soft Hands. <laughs> yeah, like my seven-year-old and four-year-old call me Pastor Soft Hands. And um, anyways, there's a crew of people. Daphne was uh, staying at my house this last summer, lived with our family, and there's a crew of people that call me Pastor Soft Hands. And the joke was, uh, last two weeks ago, when I preached, I used this um, teen devotional Bible, right? I, I mentioned it was the first Bible that I got. And uh, in the front of the book where it like, put my name and stuff like that, it was during my sermon when I opened it and showed it that I realized on one of the sections that I put the best feature I have as a teen, I put my hands. That <laughs> was my best feature. And it was during my sermon that I realized that. And I was like, that is weird. And that moment that I realized it, and so I told some people. And I have yet to tell Kaylin this inside joke because she's aware of it. So... All of you can say, hey, we know about the Pastor Soft Hands thing to her as you see her later. Okay, great, good. Uh, <clears throat> my wife, Rebecca, I mentioned two weeks ago, for those who are new, my name is Gavin. I'm married. I have a wonderful wife named Rebecca, two boys, Seth and Simeon. And uh, my wife, Rebecca, grew up on Vancouver Island. Where's the Vancouver Island people at? She grew up on Vancouver Island. Uh, she was part of a very wonderful, very loving, very godly family uh, in the Payock Church, the Pentecostal Church in Ladysmith for years. Her grandfather was a Pentecostal pastor uh, and helped start a camp on Vancouver Island called Nanus Bay Pentecostal Camp. Yeah, rep go Seahawks, right on. And uh, so her, her childhood is that she would go to this camp in the summers, every single summer. And uh, her grandparents owned a private cabin. So if you've never been, just imagine with me. Uh, over here, there's the beautiful ocean, okay? Like the Georgia Strait, the inlet, the bay, the Noose Bay right there. And there's this big grass field. And then there's this blue barn building that's called the chapel. And then as you keep working your way over, you got the dining hall and the mess hall and the playground. And then like a spattering of cabins everywhere in between that. And then at the back of the property, you have these private cabins. And one of, uh, one of the cabins... Rebecca's grandparents used to own back in the day. Uh, and so she would go for kids camp, she would go for mids camp, and she would go for teen camp, and uh, some wonderful memories. And there's pictures of it all up on the boards in the chapel on camp. And there was one year where um, a really cool, amazing thing happened uh, in her life. She was a teenager at the time, and uh, it was in the evening chapel service at teen camp, and there are some really wonderful testimonies and stories that took place. And one year specifically, she felt compelled at the altar time following the sermon to go to the front and to pray. And uh, she felt compelled to pray for her mother because her mother at the time had chronic uh, pain uh, and an illness that she had in her bladder, don't need to get into detail, uh, for many, many years. So most of Rebecca's childhood, her memories, are that she is a wonderful, loving, caring, godly mother who is in pain very often. And so she felt compelled to pray for her mother. And so she went to the front of the altar in the, like, really gross carpet that's in the front of the altar. All those from the New Bay, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and um, she prayed for her mother. And during that altar call, she felt compelled not to pray for her mother. She felt compelled to pray over her mother. And so she left the chapel service. And she ran from the blue barn chapel 
through the playgrounds, through the spattering of the cabins, back to the private cabins on the deck that her and her grandfather, her late grandfather now at the time, her grandmother, her dad, and her mom, Ruth, were sitting at, just enjoying the evening as all their kids were in the service. And she felt compelled to pray over her mother. And so she prayed over her mother and asked the Lord to heal her mother, to take away the pain in her body, to take away the pain in her life, and to heal what she had going on. And her mother Ruth felt a wave go through her body, a rush go through her body, and she was painless for the first time in quite a few years on that evening at Nanus Bay during teen camp. Yeah, amazing. It's a cool story about healing. It's a cool story about miracles because she was raised and we as a family are a Pentecostal believing family that Jesus still performs miracles today. Amen? That he is a healing God today. Amen? Amen. Uh, and so I like to hear stories and testimonies about healing. I'd like to talk about another one tonight in John chapter 5. A really cool story about healing. A really cool story about a miracle working God doing a change in a person's life. And so John chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles, open up your Bibles. If you've got your swords, open them up. If you've got your lightsabers, get your version and open it up. And we're going to John chapter 5. It will be on the screens as well. Verses 1 to 15. It says this, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied. I have no one to help me into the pool where the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Funny response to that kind of question. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Well, we're continuing on in our series throughout the book of John that Jesus came to dwell among us. We began our series three weeks ago out of John chapter 1 where Kim talked about that the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And we've moved through some of the stories in John where Jesus met up with Nicodemus and we learned that through the story of Nicodemus that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And last week, Kim talked through the story of the Samaritan woman where Jesus declared the words, I, the one you are speaking of, the Messiah, I am he. And he shares with this lady about this picture of water beside the well, right? And he says that everyone who drinks of this water, the well water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Isn't that a great picture? A spring of water welling up inside of us to eternal life. And so there's been this water theme in the book of John. We've had the theme of light and dark, and there's this theme of water. We didn't go through it, but there was a theme in chapter 2 about a wedding taking place, and Jesus performed a really exciting miracle of turning water into grape juice. It's grape juice, guys. Settle down. 
Now he turned water into wine. This, this wonderful picture of, of taking water and transforming into this livelihood of the party. Jesus is the water that transforms and brings life into us. Chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. Water that will make you thirsty again. The well water, but that he, the living water, where we will never thirst again. And in chapter 5, we continue on in this theme of John. This theme of water working its way through in the healing that takes place in this pool of Bethesda. So we're going to work through uh, this scripture a bit tonight. Uh, and so it starts off with mentioning that sometime later. So it would have been a break between chapter 4, what's going on there. And now Jesus is walking into Jerusalem with his crew, with his disciples. And it says that there was a Jewish festival taking place, a feast of the Jews. And there's some um, controversy on which festival it would have been. Because there isn't any specific information. It's too vague in the timeline to figure out what time of year it was in which that they would have went into Jerusalem. And so there's a, a big belief that it's the Passover. But other commentators question the, the, the validity of that because would John really just say a feast of the Jews if it was specifically the Passover feast? Uh, and so there's questions to it. It's also thought it would be the Feast of Purim or the Feast of like Lot's which is like the celebration that the Israelites did when they like escaped out of, of like exile. Okay? Queen Esther and those that were left in the Persian Empire still who hadn't gone yet back to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, they were there and Haman set this law to kill the remaining Jews that were there. But Esther herself was a Jew and married to the king. And so she helped save those that were left and remaining in Shushan. Shushan is, I think, how you pronounce it. And so she, it was like this like salvation. And so that was the feast that they would be reminded of every year to celebrate. God saved us. He delivered us. He reversed the lot. We were supposed to die, but God came and delivered and saved us. So it is most potentially like that. But with all that being said, the reason it's important to state is that there were people in Jerusalem. Right? During feasts, people would come to Jerusalem. And so there would have been lots of people in the city walls, in the city center. So lots of people milling around. Also mentions specifically that the pool of Bethesda was by the Sheep Gate. And lots of traffic would have been going in and through the Sheep Gate. Uh, especially at this time as people would have been journeying to Jerusalem. So they would go to the temple. The Sheep Gate was near the temple. And they would bring their sacrificial animals to the temple. So it would have been lots of traffic, lots of people, lots of mulling around. And John specifically talks about this pool, this pool of Bethesda. And for years, skeptics um, like discredited and disbelieved that it was an actual physical pool. And uh, didn't believe that it existed. But guess what? Some really cool stuff happened uh, about a hundred plus years ago, uh, is that there was some digging done near a church that exists in Jerusalem to this day, some excavating that took place, and they found a pool in this location. Uh, so, yeah, in the front bottom there would have been this pool, actually front bottom and up and over. Uh, but what's really cool is the description that John gives, uh, that it would have been near the Sheep Gate near the temple, in the location of where it is at, would have been considered close to where the temple would have been at and where the sheep gate would have been constructed. So there's like some real proof uh, in the validity of this pool being a real pool, which is really exciting. And uh, the five colonnades that John specifically mentions, you can see like in the middle center um, that like one half standing like pillar. So a colonnade is like these pillars Right? That was kind of like this walkway, and it was like covered. So it was like surrounded by these like walkways with these like big random pillars every once in a while. You know what I'm talking about? So like there's one that's still like remaining standing, which is really cool to see the validity uh, in this, this pool. So we know it existed, but it also had a bit of a reputation back in the day. So Bethesda, the, the meaning of it is house of mercy. Pool of Bethesda means house of mercy. And in your uh, scriptures there, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, it goes from verses 3 to verse 5. Uh, it would be in your Bible. It does in mine. 
And what it says is that there was a great number of people, of disabled people who were there, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. And they would lie in the shade of the colonnades, right? And during this time, during the feast, it was most likely that there was more than normal for the people who would have been in and around this pool at this time. And so it skips from verse 3 to verse 4 because in the early manuscripts, um, not all of the manuscripts had verse 4 in it. And so it's believed that it would have been added after its original writing from John. Uh, I don't think it, it would have been there because readers would have understood the context. And so I believe it was added to help understand the context of the story later on. So not all manuscripts had it. And if you have a, like a study Bible, it will be in a little quotation down at the bottom of your Bible. But verse 4, it says... And they waited for the moving of the waters. And from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, the first one in the pool after each, uh, the first one in the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. So this was the folklore that was going on. This was the legend that had it, that in the pool of Bethesda, in the house of mercy, if you went down to the pool, if you were sick or disabled or injured or hurting or needed healing or needed deliverance, if you went to the pool and when it stirred up and when it bubbled up, if you were the first into that water, the angel would touch you and would heal you and you would be delivered from your illness. That was their belief. And a great number, it says. A great number of people were there. And I can just imagine. Like, I can just imagine what it would have been like in that place, okay? Where there's disabled people and injured people and homeless people and really smelly, stinky people. And, like, they got lots going on and lots of despair. And they're lying down on the ground everywhere. And they're waiting. Who knows how long? Who knows how long they would wait until the waters would stir up and there would be a bubbling in the waters so they could jump into the waters in hopes that maybe, possibly, they could be the first one and receive some form of healing. They're so desperate. They were in such despair. And, and I, I would assume, like, like, they would jostle, they would probably push and shove and fight their way into the center. Like, I think I would if I was in a desperate place. I think we could all agree to that. It probably happened that they would fight their way in. They'd probably place their mats as close to the water as they possibly could. And it made me think of uh, the celebration of lights in Vancouver. Anybody ever been to those fireworks? Okay, like it is, I hate it. <laughs> like it's beautiful, but I hate it because it's like you try to find a place on the beach and you're jostling with like your blankets and your beach towels to like make space for you that nobody's going to like walk over and kick sand everywhere. It's frustrating. I don't like it. That's the picture I get. They're jostling to get near the pool to be ready to be the first to jump in. And so it's a bit ironic to me that the house of mercy, named the house of mercy, is really more about a house of merit. Like, I got to be the first one in there. I got to be the strongest. I got to be the one to survive. It's the survival of the fittest. If you're not quick enough, if you're not strong enough, if you're not uh, fast enough, there's no chance to be healed. Like, the weakest of weak would be left with no chance, like, and no hope to ever get in there. And we see with this man, in the house of mercy, he had been shown no mercy prior to the coming of Christ in his life. No one would help him. No one would show him mercy. At last week, Kim talked about the difference between uh, living water and non-living water. Do you remember that, for those who were here? And the, the definition of living water was moving water, flowing water. And the, the Israelites, the Jews would have a, a really clear understanding of the difference between living water and non-living water, right? Like fresh, moving, flowing water, living water. Stagnant, still, non-living water. And so this legend would have been built up over time with the truth and understanding that when the water bubbles up, it's living water. Therefore, it's in that moment as it's moving and flowing, I need to get in there. 
So we can understand where this, with this legend would have began. Like even in the Levitical law, excuse me, Levitical law, uh, there's descriptions specifically about making sure as you cleanse yourself, it's done with moving fresh water. In Leviticus 15, it says, He used to count off seven days for his ceremonial cleansing. He must wash his clothes and bathe himself with fresh water. Another word is moving water, and he will be clean. So there's this difference that they understand about moving water to stagnant water. So that's why that, when the bubbles would come up, there would be that desire and jump to get in. Rebecca and I bought a book for Seth uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, he is in grade two, seven-year-old boy, like super stereotypical in what he wants to read right now. He loves library day. Every Tuesday is library day. And every single week, he brings home the next Guinness Book of World Records. Like, whatever it is. Like, yeah, seriously. It started with, like, 2,000, and it just seems like every time. I think he's at, like, 2,008 right now. He's just, like, Guinness Book of World Records. Everything. I know. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Uh, and he will sit there, and he will just flip pages and be like, Dad, did you know this? This is amazing. This is disgusting. This is gross. Uh, and he loves it. So um, we want to encourage it, but we don't want him just reading, like, Guinness Book of World Records. And so Rebecca found this really, really cool book. Uh, and this is a classic, like, pastor's gift to his kids. I get it. Uh, but it is like a Bible info book. For kids. <laughs> yeah. It's like a Bible commentary, basically, for kids. It's super cool. And I love it. So for the last, like, two weeks, this has been the bedtime stories in their bedroom. So Seth's on the bottom bunk. Simeon is on the top bunk. And, like, we just, like, flip through this, like, Bible info book. And our boys are just, like, loving it at this moment. So a couple nights ago, I learned something specifically about this, and I thought, I am using this info from my kids' Bible info book for my sermon. Uh, and so we're going through the Ten Commandments on the page and the info and, and how they were written and created and all that kind of stuff. So it started with talking about the Ten Commandments, and then it went on to like the 613 Levitical laws, uh, and that the laws that God created, which ones were like that you had to do and the laws that you weren't supposed to do, you had to abstain from, and whatever. And they, they loved the information of it. And then there was this section in it which was so interesting, so fascinating, that how modern medicine today is proving the laws that God instituted generations ago, the validity of them. So cool. So one of them, for example, in the world that we're living in today, uh, people would have to Right? If they were unclean, they would have to be removed from themselves or from the group uh, until for a certain period of time, seven days, ten days, whatever. It's basically self-isolation. So we're just living today in like Levitical laws with COVID-19, right? Uh, one of the other ones that I just loved, it talked about this moving water, the difference between stagnant water and moving water. So it gave this scripture verse in Leviticus 15. But then it also gave this information note. It said running water. In the 1800s, a doctor discovered the death rate for mothers giving birth to children dropped 30% down to 2% when doctors washed their hands in running water rather than in a basin. Isn't that crazy? Like, like 30% to 2, 28% different from just running water to that, you know, that metal bowl-like basin. Amazing. And just this, this understanding and the difference of moving water, flowing water, fresh water, stirred up, bubbling water, living water compared to stagnant, still, non-living water. So when those bubbles would form in that pool, the hope of maybe this is it. Like maybe this is my chance for a new lot in life, for a, a new day for me, for something that has been so stuck to me or, or I've been identified as or felt the pressure or, or felt the pain could now be gone. So the desperation to get into that water. So there was a man. A man who was an invalid for 38 years. Ugh. Like, I'm almost 38. Like, it's coming close. 
That's my entire life. And many of you joke about how old I am. It's a long time. Like 38 years. An invalid is a person who is made weak or is disabled due to illness or injury. And John is revealing here in this story, as he does with his preceding stories as well, that Jesus, when he, when he goes to see people, those that in society would never believe that Jesus would go to, that they would have believed the Messiah, right? He would come as an army leader and grab those who were the well-off, the strongest and the fittest to bring with them so they could take over the Roman, the Roman rule that was in their lives. But here's Jesus going to those in society that they would think otherwise he would never do. Right? He went to Nicodemus, who is a leader and a teacher that didn't need a Messiah. He went to a Samaritan woman, a divorced, thrown to the side, tarnished female half-Jew that he loved and he met. And through her testimony, met so many others. And now a lame, paralyzed man, a person of, of injury that could have been self-inflicting. And we see later the potential of it being some self-inflicting injury or illness in his life. And so there's, there's no information specifically about like, how long he was at the pool during his like, illness. Like, was he there for the full 38 years or not? We don't know. Like, he's got to be older than 38, but we don't know how old he is. We don't know how he got to the pool, if someone helped him get there. We don't know how old he was when he was injured, but we do know that he had been there at least a significant amount of time that people knew of him. Even in the busyness of all these people coming into Jerusalem, that people would have known him. Long enough to be identifiable. Long enough for people to just give up on him. Because he's been there for so long. Long enough for the paralyzed man to give up on himself. Like, it's one thing when other people give up on you when it's been so long you just give up on yourself. Like, hope deferred for close to four decades. It's a long time. A false hope of this constant possibility of maybe this is it. A false hope of trying to jockey and get your way through. Maybe at any moment the bubbles could come up so he probably didn't sleep much. He would have been on alert. Can you imagine how draining that would be? How exhausting that would be? Hope deferred for so long that a folklore and a legend becomes truth to a person. It's a long time. For years, hope's being shattered over and over that constant like drip, you know what I'm talking about? Like drip of like let down and let down and let down and let down. And that leads to depression, right? Hope deferred makes a heart sick. And I know many of you have experienced hope deferred for a long time. Drip after drip after drip of let down. Lord, what is it? Lord, what am I missing? Why have I not been healed? Why have I not experienced deliverance? I'm here. I'm trying. Lord, where are you? In verse 6, it says, Jesus saw him lying there. And I love it. Jesus, the Lord of mercy, came into the house of mercy. Oh, that moment would have just been beautiful. Like, just wild as he steps in to this location, full of people who are hurting, lame, paralyzed, blind, sick, outcasts of society. Like, it wouldn't have been a tourist spot, right? Like, it would have been busy and smelly, and Jesus finds himself there. He goes to the outcasts. He goes to the overly needy, the invalids, those who deserve their pain to society. 
And when he comes to Jerusalem, he doesn't find the leaders. He doesn't find the officials. He doesn't find those you would think the Messiah would go to. No, he goes to the least of these, to a 38-year-old, over 38-year-old, invalid man who's broken. And Jesus asks him the question, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Like a simple yes would have sufficed, right? A simple yes would have sufficed and Jesus would have answered him. But this man is so lost in the years and the years and the drip and the drip of letdown and hope deferred. And rather than answering his question, he just complains. Like you ever been in that situation with someone before who just has a rough road, right? They've just dealt a bad hand and life's difficult and you're like afraid to ask like, how they're doing because you know it's just going to be like an over emotion flood of complaining like you've been around those people right like I, I work next to one I'm kidding Kim <laughs> I'm kidding <laughs> I know <laughs> I knew she would do this <laughs> Mark's just happy it was not him this time at the brunt of the joke no, Kim, I'm just joking. But rather than answering him, he does. He just complains of his situation, right? Jesus asks him the question, do you want to get well? And his response is what? I've tried. His response is, I've tried to get into the water, yet nobody is helping me. Like, it's not like it's been without effort. I've tried to find healing in the pool when the bubbles come up, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, but no one will help me get into the water. And sometimes, sometimes it's just easier to stay in our misfortunes than it is to have God heal us through faith. So we find ourselves stuck in this cycle. I've tried and nothing's happened. I've tried and nothing's happened, so I'd rather not. Like how often do we do that? Right, and how often do we do where, where, where Christ gives the answer, uh, or sorry, the question, begs the question, do you want to get well? And here's the opportunity for, like, deliverance and, and freedom and healing, and yet we're stuck in our own ways of how deliverance and healing and freedom is supposed to happen. Like, his response isn't, yes, I want this. His response is, I can't get to the water. And so he's stuck in this system, this legend, this belief that it has to be this way is the only way. Like we do that. Rather than accepting Christ's mercy, we reject it at times. Rather than accepting his work and his way, we want things our way. Jesus says, not the way I wanted this friendship to be restored. I want them to ask for forgiveness. Not me. Jesus, that's not the outcome that I wanted in this situation. I wanted to be on that team, not this team. Jesus, this is not the place I wanted to be at first, but I'm here. Jesus, I'm tired of being the one who is always doing the caring. I would like somebody to do the caring for me. Like how often do we force God's will to fit into our plan? got to be in the pool. It's got to be the bubbling water. I need somebody to do it for me. I can't do it. I've tried. Sir, I have no one to help me. I'm trying to get in. And in verse 8, I, I love Jesus' response. He doesn't even entertain the complaint. Like, like Nicodemus, like when he would ask the question and then Nicodemus would try to be like flushing out the answer and then Jesus would just like go on to his next point. Like he doesn't even entertain it. Like he just moves on. Ah, oh, he just moves on. And he says to the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. Is it the water that brings healing? Yes. Not the pool water. The living water brings healing. That's John's point. 
the living water, the true living water, not the legend and the folklore, but the true living water that brings life heals this man instantly. Oh, like 38 years of helplessness, hopelessness, physical immobility, failure and disappointment, 38 years gone in a matter of eight words. Like, isn't that awesome? Like, just like that. Like, Christ could have just said, get up. (laughs) He didn't have to say the last part, but we'll get to that. Like the man who had no hope of healing, no hope of healing, Christ gave him hope and he healed him. Jesus made this man well. And I want you to know tonight that Jesus wants you to be well. Jesus wants you to be well. Whatever folklore you're holding on to, what ever legend or system that his healing or deliverance has to be through this way, he wants to reveal himself to you. Whatever fear or insecurity or pain or heartache that's holding you back, Jesus wants you to be well. Much of the remaining of the chapter, we don't have a lot of time to go through it, so I'll just give you a quick brief over it. The man picks up his mat and he starts walking and there's religious leaders see him and they're all offended and upset that this man that they would have known to be lame and paralyzed for years couldn't see the miracle and were offended at the fact that he was lifting up and carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Jesus came, yes, to show compassion and love that he is all mercy and he is the healer, but he also told the man to pick up the mat for a purpose. Because he needed to show and reveal that his authority on earth as the son of man was to come and abolish this religious institution that had come about. You know those Ten Commandments? 613 that I mentioned? Like those are God's laws. What happened is there's the pharisaical extra laws, the oral tradition laws that are now known as the Mishnah written down, but these laws that were created to make sure that if you didn't break these laws, and if you didn't break these extra oral laws, you for sure weren't going to break God's laws. So it was kind of like a safeguard. But then these laws became just as valuable and held as a high regard as God's Torah, his law. And so that's what Christ came to abolish. So he wanted to change the way that they looked at Sabbath. They wanted to change the way they looked at this religious institution. And he came to change the way that we look at sin as well. So he says to the man, like, stop sinning. Like, now that you're well again, stop sinning. Like, keep going and stop sinning. And that, like, you know, stop sinning or go and sin no more phrase that uh, is recorded a few times in the gospel that Jesus uses. To me, I look at it as the same in the language when Jesus says, be righteous as I am righteous. He's essentially, like, teaching and saying, like, pursue righteousness, like, seek truth, pursue love, pursue mercy. Don't pursue sin, because sin leads to hopelessness. And he says this to this man, like, go and and don't sin, because something worse could happen, right? He knows what hopelessness is physically. Jesus is saying sin, pursuing sin, will bring hopelessness for eternity, So go and pursue truth and pursue love and pursue righteousness. Don't sin. Don't pursue sin because a worse hopelessness could come about. I want to just like time out for a second before I like conclude tonight's sermon. There's an interesting part in chapter 13, sorry, verse 13, um, that I find interesting that Jesus does often. So in verse 13, after he heals the man, tells the man to pick up his mat and to walk, what does Jesus do? He slips away. He bolts. That's right. He leaves. <laughs> right? Like, and then the, the religious leaders are saying to this guy, like, who healed you? How did this happen? Why are you carrying your mat? And he's like, this guy healed me. And they're like, who? And he's like, I have no clue. <laughs> like, can you imagine life changing and then you have no clue who it was? 
Like Jesus slips away. And, and I'm not trying to look too much into this, um, but Kim and I, over the summer, we talked about this. And, and how true is it that when the Lord does something big in your life, like a deliverance happens, or a moment, or a fresh revelation, an experience of the Spirit, an empowerment of Him, and it's like, wow, Lord, this is incredible. And then it feels like He is like MIA the next week. Ever been there? Yeah, I've been there lots. Like, like Lord, I'm on a high for you. I totally have 100% faith. There's nothing that could discourage or distract me. I've seen healing. I've seen fresh revelations. I've seen people come to know Jesus. And then all of a sudden, it's like despair again. Like, I have no idea where you are. And again, I'm not trying to look too far into it. But what I do really enjoy about this passage is the next place that this man meets Jesus is in the temple. And Jesus says, hey, it's... It's good to see you again. You're like, you're well again, right? And I, I just really like that. And so to me, like, again, I'll get too deep into it, but, like, if you're in a season where it feels like Christ is MIA in your life, like, we know the presence of God is everywhere. At the temple, that's where the presence of God resided. Now it's everywhere. But there's also, a, I know in my life, and I'm certain it's in yours, there's certain locations in your life where it feels like you can genuinely connect with the presence of God more than in others. This is where this man found Jesus again, after he didn't know where he went, where he seemed MIA, was where the presence of God resides. So where in your life is a, regularly, like a regular meeting place that you've sensed the presence of God in your life? And if it feels like Christ is MIA currently, like go to that place regularly, consistently, habitually going to that place and waiting until Jesus says, hey, it's good to see you again. Okay? Back into the game. All right. We'll finish up here. Do you want to get well? Jesus wants you to be well. I feel that there are in, in my life, there's been times, in people that I have hung out with, spent time with, both here at this school and being able to minister to in my home in Chilliwack at First Ave. Like there's, people have their own pool of Bethesda's. Where it's like they've tried and they've tried and they've tried and they've tried and it just seems like nothing ever changes. You ever been there before in your life? Willing to share? Yeah, appreciate that. Like hope deferred for so long. Belief that there will be relief, but now just acceptance that it will probably never happen. Brant was uh, up with the team last week, and I appreciated what he said during the altar time. He said that he senses there's someone in the room tonight that is just holding on to pain. His words were sensing that someone was holding on to pain and hurt and holding on to it for some time. Whoever that is, Jesus wants you to be well. Maybe you feel like you're in this trapped, not house of mercy, but house of merit, where you got to keep striving and trying and jostling and working and putting in this effort. I'm not smart enough or not strong enough or not quick enough. If I was just better at this or if I prayed harder, Jesus wants you to be well. Maybe you've tried to force God into your way, into your plan, into how you think it should be done. That he has to work through your system. The story I mentioned about Rebecca and her mom at the beginning of the, the sermon, uh, God moved in a really cool way. But unfortunately, uh, years later, her sickness came back. Uh, it was the same thing. And so their family had to go through this prayer again of like, Lord, like we're doing this again? And both Rebecca and I came to school here, and we started dating, and it was after our first year that she moved uh, back home, and like we would, I would go visit her often. And um, <clears throat> so I went and visited her one weekend in my second year of Bible college, and we went to church on Sunday morning. And a wonderful, small little Pentecostal church in Ladysmith. 
And uh, they, too, believe in healing and miracles. And so after the Sunday service, invited people to come up. The prayer team was up there. And they said, anybody who wants prayer for deliverance and healing, come to the front. And Ruth chose to go up to the front to be prayed over again. And I stood there, in my, uh, stood there by the chair, and I felt compelled in my spirit to go pray for Rebecca's mom. We were dating at the time, not even a year, but felt compelled to go and pray for Rebecca's mom. And guess what? I didn't move. I was afraid to step forward and to do anything, so I stood there and didn't move, thinking, what? Who? No, I can't. There's no way I can. They're going to think I'm this, like, over like confident, prideful Bible college student that wants to be a pastor who thinks I can come into this church that's not my home church and pray for this lady who could potentially be a future mother-in-law, but I don't know them very well. Who am I that I can come and pray for a person? There's no way. So I stood there, and it was like, you should go pray for her. I want you to pray for her. Go pray for her. And I stood there, and I didn't do a thing. So about three or four minutes later, Rebecca's sister, younger sister, who's in high school at the time, had more faith than the second-year Bible college student and walks to the front of the church behind her mom, puts her hands on her, and bam, a wave goes through her body again and physically healed. Oh, it was awesome for everybody else. <laughs> like that afternoon, we're at her house. The pastor had come over. Her grandfather and grandmother, who are retired pastors, were over. And it's just celebration. And I felt like crap on the inside. Right? Like just, it wasn't the way that I thought it should be done. And I missed out on an opportunity to experience the power of God in the form of a miracle and healing in a person's life. God wants you to be well. And maybe you've been told you just need to pray harder and read your Bible more and have better faith. I'm sorry if it, those are the things that have been thrown towards you. But Jesus wants you to be well. I'm going to invite you guys to come on up. <clears throat> what I do want to offer tonight, if you're in a season where you've been holding on to pain, you've been holding on to hurt, maybe it's physical, it could be relational, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual, but you just feel this hope deferred, this letdown over and over and over for so long that you're almost to the point that you think deliverance could never happen to you. Maybe like a guy who had been an invalid for 38 years. Maybe you're in a season where it's just that it seems the Lord is MIA in your life. And you would like some deliverance of feeling like hopeless in the sense that he's ever going to speak to you again. Maybe you're in a season of life where just like this man at the end in, in verse 15 of our passage this evening, where Jesus is saying, go and sin no more. Maybe you're in a season where you truly just need to repent and confess of sin that's in your life and experience healing and deliverance from unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life. In Psalms it says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Jesus wants you to be well. And so repent and turn from your sins. And seek righteousness and truth. As we confess our sins, God brings forgiveness. But James talks about that as we confess our sins to others, we receive healing in our lives. And so maybe tonight is a night where you come to the front. Maybe the Spirit is compelling you in this moment to come and receive healing and deliverance in your life. Maybe you just need to, again, consistently and habitually come to the front or come find a place where you seek the face of God so that you can see him and hear from him again. Or maybe you need to find a place where you confess sin in your life to the Lord and to a trusted friend. 
but we want to create an environment and space for that to happen. And I really hope that some of you feel compelled in your spirit to go to pray for someone. And can I encourage you to listen to that voice? And if you do pray for someone, could you please put a mask on? We want to respect people's spaces and be as healthy as we can. So please put a mask on so as we pray over people. But I don't want to miss the chance that God wants to do something pretty, pretty amazing today. So do we all stand here in this room? <clears throat> if you feel like you've tried and you've tried and you've tried again in your own ways, and you just need to come to the, a place and say, Lord, this is me, have your way, now's the time to do so. I'm going to pray, and as I conclude, the altar is open, the front is open. Please don't miss this opportunity. And if you feel tired, if you don't feel like, oh, this is the moment, I'm not in the, in the mood or the feelings, I don't think the guy who was an invalid for 38 years had those emotions either, okay? And the Lord moved in his life. Jesus, I thank you that you are a healing God, that you are a miracle-working God, that you are the Lord of mercy. And we pray that in this place tonight, we would receive your mercy. Jesus, we would receive your healing. We would receive your deliverance. If it's physical, Jesus, in your name, I pray for physical healing to take place in bodies. I pray for realignments to take place in bodies in this room tonight. Lord, I pray for deliverance and restoration in relationships and friendships that have been tarnished. Lord, I pray for a, a forgiveness of others and a forgiveness of, of self. Jesus, would your forgiveness be evident? And will you give fresh revelations of forgiveness here in this room tonight? Jesus, I pray if there is a spiritual dryness in someone's life, that there would be breakthrough and deliverance this evening in your name, Jesus. I pray in their consistent drive to be near you and with you. May they not give up. May they not stop. God, I pray that it, they would be compelled to draw closer to you to find themselves um, <clears throat> drawing near to you. And I thank you for the word that was mentioned as we began. That if we remain in you, you will remain in us. I pray that promise would reign true over their lives this evening. And so, Lord, we surrender ourselves and say, move in this place, Holy Spirit, in your name. Come to the front as we sing, and I pray Jesus meets you.